I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres such as slashers, repeaters, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. 10,000 downloads. Can you believe it? Honestly, no. When we started this, I really, t- I, I was scared we were going to be like other podcasts that like we do 10 episodes and then we're like, all right, well, nobody picked us up onto another hobby, but uh, year three, sticking it through <laughs> 54th fucking episode and uh, 10,000 downloads. And we're going to celebrate it by covering a movie written by an eight-year-old. Technically, yes. <laughs> but anyways, here we are on February the 15th, 2021, recording episode 54 on the Hatchet franchise. This will be part one. And I guess we should uh, jump into the news and whatnot before we start with the films. Sweet. I just had a few things to note that I kept track of since the uh, last episode. We got Heather Lingenkamp joining the cast of Flanagan's Netflix series, The Midnight Club. Hey, we'll probably get to see her in something where the writer didn't suck. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Christopher Plummer passed away, which, I mean, dude's been in so many movies. He was in The Sound of Music, but he did a bunch of horror movies, too. So, Oh, damn. I always think of him from uh, Dracula 2000, the Wes Craven movie. He was um, Van Helsing, remember? Oh, yeah. We have Pedro Pascal as Joel and Bella Ramsey as Ellie in The Last of Us show for HBO Max, which that's fucking fantastic casting. Does that mean I need to actually finish playing through both one and two before watching that? I haven't played the second one yet. I've only played the first one, but I loved it. And I haven't seen the show Chernobyl yet, but the people that made Chernobyl are who are making The Last of Us, and that show was supposed to be awesome, so... Oh, dude, that was like the most riveting docudrama type thing. That shit was good. (laughs) (laughs) So what everybody tells me, and that's who's making uh, Last of Us. But Bella Ramsey was badass in Game of Thrones, right? And I love Pedro Pascal. I mean, primarily because he's the Mandalorian right now. But, (laughs) you know, he was in um, Wonder Woman 84, which was terrible. But he was good in it, and, <laughs> and he was good in Narcos. He's been in a bunch of shit, but I'm excited about that casting. Okay. This Borderlands movie being made by Eli Roth is going to be fucking crazy as they keep adding cast members. And I think we've gone over some of the previous castings on other episodes, but they just announced in the past couple of days that Jack Black's going to be Claptrap, which I could see that, and Jamie Lee Curtis is going to be Dr. Tannis. So I should play this too. <laughs> should at least play Borderlands too, but I think it's based off the first Borderlands game. So, okay. They're good. You got a PlayStation, do it. I know. I need to just like call in dead. So I have time. And the last little bit of news is that the paranormal activity franchise is getting rebooted by Blumhouse with Christopher Landon and William Eubank making it. I'm on the fence <laughs> with this one so far. <laughs> Well, you have Christopher Landon, who wrote a couple of them, I think, and both of them have made horror movies, so we'll just have to see how this goes. And Christopher Landon's also the uh, Happy Death Day guy, right? Yeah, so he wrote Paranormal Activity 2, 3, and 4, and the Marked Ones, and Happy Death Day to you, at least. Okay, sweet. And Freaky. Normally, I get mad when something gets remade this soon after it came out, but it's some of the same people. And I'm thinking maybe they just want to do it with a more coherent story that in a properly used big budget could be great. It could also be disastrous. Yeah. So, cause I mean, they did some really cool stuff, but I feel like 
they were making it up as they went along. So I don't know. And yeah. it could just be a different found footage story altogether, not actually be a reboot. Who knows? Hey, hey, could be. Could just be another story in the universe. We don't know shit. That's what we're trying to say. <laughs> Anybody who's listened to this podcast from the beginning is well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. As far as announcements, I already said we hit 10,000 downloads, but we did say we would make top 10 horror movie lists for 10,000 downloads. So I spent six days of my life trying to make this list. Wow. I think I spent maybe six minutes. <laughs> I spent about two, about two minutes. I was joking. Um, I'm going to have somebody hold this list against me at some point in time and say, hey, that movie wasn't in your list. But honestly, it, this was, was hard for me to do. So I had to give myself some criteria. And I went with horror movies that were the most memorable to me and what I rewatch every year. I finally stuck to those on this one about what do I always watch and what can I always put in? Doesn't matter if I, I love it from time to time. It's got to be something that I can always throw in and be happy. So here's my list in no particular order. Actually, I think it's in alphabetical order, but it's, <laughs> it's not ranked. Let me say that. So Critters, Fright Night, The Gate, Halloween, The Lost Boys. Night of the Creeps, Paranormal Activity, Poltergeist, Scream, and Silver Bullet. Wow. We're going to have less overlap than I thought we would. Okay. Okay. All right. What's rattling around in Josh's brain right now since this is ever evolving? So as for me, in no particular order, including alphabetically, Scream, <laughs> of course, Poltergeist, Cabin in the Woods, Evil Dead 2, Club Dread, Lost Boys, Nightmare on Elm Street, Gremlins, and Dead Alive. Good choices. And then there was ended up being a tie in the last slot, so we can either have one and an honorable mention, but I don't know. I rounded it out with Trick or Treat and The Descent. Okay, okay. I had a couple that I kept trying to squeeze in there, and that was Evil Dead 2, Jennifer's Body, because I love watching that fucking movie all the time, <laughs> and a tie with Cabin in the Woods and Tucker and Dale versus Evil. And I decided to pull those two out because I think they're horror films. I fucking love them, and I probably watch them more than some of the others on this list. But I started thinking about how those are the movies that I use when people come over and say they they don't like horror movies. And I'm like, well, watch these. And I kind of wean them in with it. So I was like, maybe I shouldn't make those ultimate horror if I use them for that purpose. <laughs> but Cabin in the Woods, yeah, it was, it was on here like 15 times on this list. <laughs> it just hits like a bunch of the uh, horror shit on the head. It's, it's kind of neat. Nope. And I know we made like goofy dance videos when we hit... I don't even remember what the, was it 1,000 and 5,000 downloads? Yeah, 1K and 5K, yep. And we wanted to try to make like a little short horror movie, which I'm still not against us doing that, but with COVID and the severe winter storm that we're experiencing right now and our workload, I didn't want to rush something like that. I didn't even know if we'd get together to do it. So we'll do that down the road. Yeah, eventually. And uh, in, in honor of us hitting 10,000 downloads, I'd like to hit more downloads. So... I was thinking that we probably need to start posting something on YouTube, and I thought about putting all of our episodes up there with a graphic, and then I read a statistic about how people tend to only watch videos on YouTube that's just audio with a static picture for about 90 seconds, and they quit. That's the average I saw the statistic on multiple sites, and uh, I was thinking that would probably be a waste of time. So if you guys have 
any ideas for stuff that you want to send us that you think would be neat for us to put on YouTube, just because YouTube is such a searchable engine, you know, like maybe clips of us recording where it becomes a trailer. Maybe we just start making trailers, some kind of reviews you guys can think of. And, and we can start putting a little bit of stuff like that on YouTube. We don't want to primarily focus on YouTube or anything. It would just be neat to have another avenue to get, um, people listening to the show and sending in more comments and helping us improve. And I've had a couple of people contact me about a Patreon. We haven't done that yet because I haven't felt the need, but we do want to at some point pay for some advertisements in some places. So I don't want to do it unless there's cool stuff to do. So if you guys have any ideas for things that you've seen on Patreons that you think is worth doing, send me an email about that too. And, and we'll consider doing that down the road maybe, but I just want to make sure there's fun stuff on there if we do do it. Yeah, because this is definitely still just, I mean, it really is just a passion project. We haven't gone hardcore into any kind of advertising or, or ad deals or anything. So if there's there's stuff that you want to see us do or, or cover or anything like that, we're totally open to it because we're just doing it for fun and we're limited in our capacity for ideas. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I speaking for myself? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have great ideas, okay? For the record, Hatchet was not my idea. <laughs> oh, everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that just leads us to updates and corrections from the previous episode. And on the last episode, Josh told a story about how Grindhouse Films got their name from being in strip clubs and a little bit of history about that. And I had to cut it from the episode just because of the way the editing worked and a mistake in there. And I... <laughs> Couldn't fit it back in there, but I thought it was an interesting story. So, Josh, you want to share that part? Yeah, um, the the name came from the the movies pretty much being so unsavory that they were the kind of places that you would see in, you know, strip clubs and, you know, not even like full-blown strip clubs, but even just like burlesque-type places and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, it's just something that could be on in the background that's just some crazy shit while, you know, girls are dancing and stuff and, uh, you know, grinding on them poles. So, Grindhouse. Jesus. No, polls. But yeah, it, it was a nice little historical fact that um, I couldn't put it back in there once <laughs> edited. So I wanted to share that. I did look up the title of the poem because I forgot to notate it. The butterfly poem. And it's Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening. And it's not exactly the poem. It's kind of edited a little bit. So. And the last thing, I, I said something about how the second half of Death Proof goes black and white for a little bit and then went back to color. And I was like, I don't know why he did it randomly, but it looked cool. And it was an homage to Kill Bill where he made the film cut to black and white anytime the bride had a crazy fight scene, like against the crazy 88 to hide blood, right? So that he wouldn't get too, ah. too bad of a rating. Um, so it would go black and white so there wouldn't be red blood flying everywhere. And this was actually an old Kung Fu movie trick that he deployed in Kill Bill as an homage there and just reused it. But that's it for last episode's updates and corrections. However, for this episode, I just want to say I'm having uh, internet issues right now, so we have to keep stopping and starting recording, and um, hopefully it all sounds good and we're done. Yeah, it'll be fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess just real quick for what we watched, I haven't really thought about what I watched. Like, I'm still watching WandaVision and rewatching being human and that discovery of witches show of my wife, but that's about it. And then I got werewolf, the apocalypse earth blood last night. So I started playing that as a game. So that's been pretty, 
pretty fun and horror related. And I did laugh because Tarker's Mill is the town the werewolves are attacking in, in the game. <laughs> and that is the town from Silver Bullet. So That's what I thought. <laughs> and uh, a bunch of Hatchet movies because I'd only ever seen the first one once. I had to watch all four of them a couple of times. So <laughs> there's that. What have you watched? We watched Blackwater Vampire which is okay. uh, basically Blair Witch in the Snow with a vampire and not a very good movie. I recommend people to pass on it unless they just want to see something that's the Blair Witch knockoff. We watched Promising Young Woman. Okay. The wife had been wanting to watch it. And then after you mentioned it, I'm like, okay, well, I'll actually watch it with you. So uh, it's interesting for people that haven't seen it. I don't want to go into detail and spoil it, but there are some things that get a little illogical towards the end, <laughs> but it was, it was a pretty good movie. It's something different. I'll, I'll give it that. Yeah. And there was a nice fake out going from the trailer to the movie to what it's actually about. Right. Yeah. Um, sea fever, which was, it, it's this boat and there's like the sea monster and God, you want to talk about illogical. If, if you're into sea beasts and stuff like that, like, <laughs> I guess give it a watch, but and like it looks good, it it's like shot well, and like I, I hate it when a movie looks so good and then the writing just lets it down because the acting's good. It's just like you really want me to read this, and they did. Um, anyways, <laughs> I'm gonna be real mad if I find out somebody that I like wrote or directed that. We watched the Happy Time Murders, which okay, you know, dumb puppet movie <laughs> cop drama thing. But I like Greg the Bunny, thanks to my wife, and there's stuff in this that totally reminds me of Greg the Bunny, and uh. I didn't realize that movie was made by Jim Henson's fucking son. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's, uh, oh my God, what's the name of his studio? Anyways, look it up. Like, I didn't know this guy was this fucking funny and this demented. And it's so cool to see that he could do this. Anyways, it's a fun movie. There's nothing, like, it's just fun. Like, there's nothing special <laughs> about it. It's just fun. Anyways, I got, okay. I got a couple more here. Mortal, which the wife watched, which I only saw bits and pieces of, is made by the same dude that made uh, Troll Hunter. Um, he made a couple other movies. I always forget which ones. One of them being a much bigger movie <laughs> that I can never fucking remember. The bits and pieces of it that I saw look like it's awesome. And it's it's about this. Well, I don't want to give that away. Um it's right up your alley. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Speaking of right up your alley, we watched a movie called Intruders. Okay. It's got one of the Culkins in it, the one from Scream 4. Okay. I uh, forget his name, but uh, it's this this chick that lives in this house by herself, and he's like the grocery delivery boy. And uh, these guys find out that she's loaded alone in this house and decide to actually break in and take her shit. Only they find out that she's got way deeper problems than just being a shut-in with agoraphobia. And okay. it, it goes where you kind of can tell it's going to go, but it's fucking fun. You, I think you'd, you'd really like it. And, um, the last one being, we, we watched the little things and that was a big old letdown for me. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't. I wanted to, everything on paper made it look and sound awesome. And then the reviews came out that it was just like a really mediocre movie and they were surprised Denzel Washington did it. And it's crazy that you could call it a mediocre movie and it have Denzel Washington because he usually can just carry the movie by himself. Yeah. Yeah. W watching it, I was like, Denzel and these other people really put up with Jared Leto to make this. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that Zack Snyder redid what Jared Leto looks like as the Joker for his Justice League recut that comes out in a week or two. Oh, really? Yeah. He actually looks like the Joker now, not like a juggalo. <laughs> <laughs> Fago all around. <laughs> <laughs> I did think of two other things we watched. We watched the um, 
on Netflix, they just came out with a Cecil Hotel documentary about the lady that, you know, was in the elevator on the footage and disappeared. Yeah, yeah, the, they found her body. Yeah. The wife watched it. It was pretty damn good. I mean, I knew all about that true crime story, but it was a good documentary. I like the approach they took and how it ended from everyone's perspective. And we also watched that documentary about what's it called? Like framing Britney, but it's about Britney Spears. And that shit's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. But uh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about those. But yeah, those are a couple docs that I watched with my wife. But uh, I guess that's it for housekeeping. So it's it's time to dive into the films. And uh, Josh's going to take the reins on this one. So uh, let's do it. Yeah, no sloppy seconds for Josh this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit of backstory about this movie before we go through the beginning and some, some more behind-the-scenes stuff. So the origin for this movie is that at eight years old, Adam Green was at, he was in camp and the counselor said to stay away from this one particular cabin or hatchet face would get him. And uh, later on, Green added a backstory to scare the other kids and got them so worked up that they were like calling for their parents and like wrecked (laughs) camp and he got kicked out. But even that young, he had like built this character around this hatchet face thing. So Years go on and there's a whole lot about, you know, as far as film school and, you know, he where he met Will Barrett and all that stuff and how they made their first movie, Coffee and Donuts and all this other shit that I'm going to save the bulk of that stuff for when we get to his director episode, because there's a few more movies of his that I really hope we get to. But eventually they did what at the time still wasn't a consistent thing. And that was they shot a mock trailer. And they went on a Louisiana swamp tour, a fucking gator tour. And they've, they're like hanging off the side of the boat with the fucking camera over the water. And like the tour guide's like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, we're just shooting alligators. Like, you sure you're just shooting alligators? Yeah, we're just shooting alligators. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of this stuff that I actually covered behind the scenes wise when we touched on this movie when we were doing the, the giant slasher series. So if I'm repeating myself, deal with it. It'll be over soon. I promise. <laughs> so with the mock trailer done, they had a friend's four-year-old daughter record the voiceover um, that telling the story of Victor Crowley and they released this shit. And they did, it was just one of those things that was lightning in a bottle and people thought it was real. And like he was getting contacted by bloody disgusting and Fangoria, like, Oh, this looks awesome. When's it coming out? And like, it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and this generated enough buzz for them to actually make a movie, you know, investors came along and they put their shit together. The only thing I want to say about the backstory and making of this movie is the tagline on the poster. Old school American horror. Oh, no, no, not that tagline. That is a cool one. Uh But I mean, when he tried to get the movie made and the (gasps) studio told him it's not a remake, it's not a sequel, and it's not based on a Japanese one, we'll pass. (laughs) So he put that on the poster. That's the tagline on the top of the poster. Because he was told they wouldn't wouldn't give him any money to make the movie because it didn't (laughs) meet one of those three check boxes there. And if you think about when it came out, yeah. Everything was a remake, a sequel, or based on a Japanese war movie. So that was fantastic. And the, the fact that he just took that, ran with it, slapped it on the fucking poster, fantastic. That shit is great. All right, so let's dive into it. Hatchet, 2006, written and directed by Adam Green. And he's done a bunch, well, not a bunch of other stuff. Really only a handful of things. <laughs> so a bunch of Hatchet sequels, Spiral, Frozen, not the Disney Frozen, um, <laughs> <laughs> digging up the marrow. There's a couple other ones, but that's what I really know him for is all the other shit that he does seemingly for fun. And that's like Adam Green's scary sleepover. Yep. 
the mock commercials like the the Jack Chop. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he did the Saber commercials with Team Unicorn. That was one of the earliest things that actually got him some notoriety. And we can't forget the movie Crypt. Yes. Yes, that's and that's why I like Joe Lynch so much, you know, because of the movie Crypt and Holliston. (laughs) I was so pumped to watch Hatchet for the first time because I'd been listening to the movie Crypt and I was like, I got to see what kind of movie this guy made. And then I saw Hatchet and moving on. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got Joel David Moore as Ben. I always immediately jump to Grandma's Boy and Dodgeball, but, you know, Avatar and then I'm going to go back to Aeroscope stuff, Chillerama and Spiral. <laughs> but to me, he's always going to be Robot Bitch from Grandma's Boy. There's just I know, no way around it. That's what I always see him as. I, I did think it was funny. I was watching an interview with Adam Green, and he was saying that when he came in to uh, read for the part, he was like, no, I already cast that one bullshit part. I don't remember who it was, like one of the side characters. And, and they're like, no, 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 he he's here to read for Ben. And he's like, what? No, this isn't going to fucking work. Yep. And he let him read for it. And he's like, never mind. He's Ben. Yep. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Green Green admits to be a complete dick about it because he's like, I even told him we're wasting our fucking time. And then he read and I'm like all right, we're done casting. (laughs) (laughs) So we've also got Tamar Fieldman, which I think she goes by a different name now, but at the time, Tamar Fieldman, as Mary Beth. And she's done some TV, most notably Dirty Sexy Money and Gossip Girl. We've got Dion Richmond as Marcus, which I jumped straight (laughs) to, not another teen movie as the stereotypical black guy. He's so fucking good in that movie. and The token black guy, right? Yeah, exactly. And he's done a crap ton of TV going back to the 80s, like child actor type shit. Kane fucking hotter as not just the stunt coordinator, but as Victor Crowley and Mr. Crowley. Let's see, how busy does Kane hotter stay? At the time of this recording, he has 20 movies in pre-slash-post-production. Yep. Of course, everybody thinks of Friday the 13th. I think of Otter stuff, because we're going to get into him deep sometime later in this podcast, but he's great in Almost Mercy. He's fucking great in Holliston. I just recently found out he's in Hard Bodies, and I'm going to have to go back and spot his ass. And uh, Pumpkinhead 2, which I bring up for a very specific reason that we'll get to later. I didn't know he was in Pumpkinhead 2. Yeah, Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings, with the interesting flashback. Anyways, um, so we've also got (laughs) Mercedes McNabb as Misty who I only know from Buffy and Angel, but I'm sure she's been in other shit. <laughs> That's what I always think of, too. So We've got Perry Shin as Sean, who just a crap ton of TV. Yeah. And a, a damn good actor. And he's got an interesting story to tell in this movie. And we're going to round this out, kind of, with uh, Richard Reilly as Jim. Currently has over 400 credits to his name, but I always come straight to Office Space and a yeah. little, little bit lessly uh, grounded for life. But definitely... I still tell people when they're getting out of hand, like, yo, put your jump to conclusions mad away just because of this guy. (laughs) And uh, finally, to round out our cast and talk about special effects, we've got John Carl Beekler, who we've mentioned several times before. Reanimator, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 6, almost all of the Ghoulies films, Halloween 4. Hell, I think Halloween 6, too. Just (laughs) fucking legend. Uh, I believe he passed away in 2019. Yeah, he passed away recently. Just you know, one, one of those old school practical effects guys. 
And he played a fucking key role in some of the shit that happened in this movie. And he's also Jack Cracker, your typical cracker in the swamp. <laughs> so as I alluded to, to me, so much of this, the idea for this movie is stolen from Pumpkinhead 2. And I've never seen Green admit to it in text or on video in an interview. Because if you watch Pumpkinhead 2, there's the flashback to young, deformed Pumpkinhead. I forget the actual name. In his overalls with his elephant man face and his scraggly yeah. hair getting picked on by the kids and then you know getting killed at the well and just the look of victor crowley and when we go into the flashback scene i think subconsciously like when i'm writing songs and i'm like i just came up with something great and then i play it for somebody and they tell me what song i i ripped off (laughs) i really think that's what happened here but who knows i definitely get that vibe watching it i mean that's my thing with this movie. I like it more now, but it, it feels more like an homage to, to horror and slashers than it feels like its own thing sometimes, you know, and I definitely get that vibe. Yes, most certainly. So once money came on board, they decided, I don't know who they got first, but I know they went, one of the first people they went after was Kane Hodder and they got him and Tony Todd and Robert England. Now, I, I believe it was Robert England that was quoted as saying that he was brought in because of Beekler being already on the project and he trusted him. So I think there was a lot of I think Beekler may have been more approachable in, in the beginning of this thing. And that may have given enough credence to start bringing in the other people that agree to be in the movie, because this is okay. this, when it's your first fucking film and you get all this and you're not like you weren't born into the industry. You're not somebody's dad cause, or son or cousin or any shit like that. So that just blows my mind. Yeah. Another funny thing about uh, Joel David Moore and him, you know, Green not wanting him in the movie. Right after this, Green and Moore co-directed the movie Spiral, which was put out by Aries. Oh, yeah. Adam Green's production company. So they've been attached at the hip since then on behind the scenes type stuff on some things. So typical low budget independent horror film, 28 day shoot, very little in the swamp. Most of it was shot in California, but we'll get into that in the desert, right? Yep. And in true Kane hotter fashion, they, none of the cast got to see him until they needed to see him on camera. So he would stay completely covered up if he was in makeup so he could do stunt coordination and blocking and shit like that and would, you know, bark and growl yeah, you know, out of you before <laughs> coming up for kills and shit. Just typical Kane hotter shit. So uh, let's jump into the shit. So the film opens with Samson and Ainsley gator hunting and uh, Ainsley starts pissing off the boat and a gator pops up and uh, he's pissing on the gator's head. One, if only they had some marshmallows, because on the behind the scenes, when they went back for the swamp tour again, apparently alligators really like marshmallows. And they'll throw I mar- saw that. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> they'll throw marshmallows out in the water to get away from the boat. <laughs> Green thought pissing on the gator's head was just over the top, not going to be funny. And Beekler said, anything with pee is funny. We're going to come back to that later, too. (laughs) So uh, Ainsley's like, look, look, get me to shore so I can go finish pissing. And he goes off to finish his piss. And he comes back to the boat to find his disemboweled paw. And uh, paw is, is, of course... Robert England in this movie. So real, they had him for two days for the, for shooting. Cause it's just like, you're here, you say two lines, you get killed. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like getting Donald Pleasance on set for Halloween, right? Yes. So all of a sudden we get this POV view of something charging Ainsley. And then we quickly see him get his arm ripped off. What's presumably a kidney ripped out. And then his body <laughs> torn in half while ridiculous amount of blood flies under the trees. I mean, ridiculous amounts. Oh Yeah. And I do want to point out that Ainsley is Josh from the Blair Witch Project. Holy fuck balls. 
Oh, you didn't know that? I did not catch that. <laughs> yeah, I recognized him. I see. I thought I recognized him for something. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to dig into this. The one that you got to got to mention every fucking body in is the second one. But we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> So on to our opening credits, which is a low crawl over the surface of the water that dives down below and eventually up through a sewer grate into daylight on Bourbon Street. It's Mardi Gras, which I like that. It's a really cool transition there. I just think going from night to day in the party, I that was really, really neat. Yeah. So with it being Bourbon Street at Mardi Gras, we see lots of boobs and we get introduced to Ben, who is bitching about his recent breakup incessantly. And we meet Marcus, who kind of ends up being the voice of reason throughout the flick yeah. who just wants to party. And we get buddy one played by Adam green. He'll be gone soon. And we get two beer guy. I forget the guy's name, but he works on the crew. And uh, yeah, two beer guy is a character in all of green and Barrett's early short films. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's why he's in there. Yeah. Adam says he wishes he would have given himself that role instead of a speaking part. Yeah. After watching it. <laughs> yeah. His acting's much better in Holliston. Some of it's really bad, but it's better in Austin. <laughs> I couldn't make it past the second episode, man. <laughs> you have to, man. You have to. They were shot way out of order, too. So, like, you'll go, like, a really bad episode and then a really good episode. And that's because there were, like, 10 episodes <laughs> in when they did that one. And that's what the coffee and donuts thing became that, right? Basically, yes. So Ben's like, I don't want to be around all these girls and I don't want to be partying. You know, I'm a sad sack and I, I'm, I want to ditch all this and go on this haunted swamp tour. How is this fun? This place is disgusting. Our hotel room smells like sweaty balls, man. Everybody's just drunk and looking for a fight. You, you threw up six times yesterday. How do you even do that? You guys just stay and have fun, all right? I'm going to go find something to do. So uh, the group splits and Marcus reluctantly follows Ben. And the old couple they pass as they're coming up on the Swamp Tour place is actually Joel David Moore's parents. Oh. Yep. So at the door, they're greeted by Reverend Zombie, which is fucking Tony Todd, who tells him he can't do tours anymore because insurance got too high after what happened. And he starts telling the spooky story that climaxes with the tourist slipping and hitting his head and suing Reverend Zombie. That cocksucker! That's it? And uh, <laughs> I love that part because... <laughs> he's so serious about it and he's going in and telling the story and you're waiting to find out about this like ghost taking somebody's soul or, or Victor Crowley killing somebody, yeah. you know? <laughs> so he sends him two blocks over for another tour. Now all the shots that are from the street view, looking at Tony Todd, if that was a foot wider, you'd see that it's just a wall built in the desert. All the shots oh. from his point of view of Ben and Marcus were actually filmed in New Orleans because they couldn't afford to fly all these people out to New Orleans. So that was actually done and stitched together. And they took a, a picture of the door for reference for them to build it. And after they built it, they realized that they took a picture of the wrong fucking door. And that's why you <laughs> never see the actual door from Ben and Marcus's point of view. I just think that's hilarious. But hey, movie magic. These are the two guys. They're, they're the comedic relief, really, even though there's a lot of comedy in the movie. And you've constantly got Ben just whining and whining and Marcus told him how it, it's all weak shit and your game's weak shit and you need to shut the fuck up and you need to just have some fun and so they've known each other a long time and uh, Ben ends up going back at Marcus and giving him shit about the time he got crabs foreshadowing <laughs> <laughs> so they walk into Marie Laveau's and uh, the girl puking outside as they walk in is producer Sarah Elbert and uh, once in, they immediately spot two topless chicks, Misty and Jenna, who are being filmed by Doug Shapiro. God, brush your teeth much? Lick me, bitch. No, thanks. I like my tongue without the syphilis. 
You're syphilis, Miss Big Words. Okay, that didn't even make sense. Their banter is fantastic. And I do want to point out that Doug Shapiro is Joel Murray, Bill Murray's brother. Holy shit. So you're saying I should read farther down the cast list sometimes. Oh, I just recognize him. I always remember him from um, One Crazy Summer, and he does golf shit with Bill also. So he's probably <laughs> in a Caddyshack movie somewhere if I looked into it. I just, I just recognize him. Okay, Stoner Josh would probably go, oh, if I saw him. So in walks this Creole Asian, and his name's Sean. <laughs> and he's going to be their tow guide. <laughs> and uh the little coin trick he does that was not in the script at all he just did it during the take and it's like yeah like oh i I practice magic blah 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 yada 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 so anyways that was kind of neat so they hop on the scare bus (laughs) 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 and uh as they're loading on we meet the rest of the group and ben sits next to mary beth who's not chatting kind of bitchy to be honest and uh we also see the conservative looking older couple towards the front of the bus and they introduce themselves to Shapiro. And uh, they're excited to learn that he's a movie maker. What kind of movie is it? Well, have you ever heard of Bayou Beavers? Sure. No. no. I love that part. His delivery is fantastic. Like the timing of it. Yes. He is the only one that could have done that, man. <laughs> so uh, we get a little montage of the, the scare bus going through town. So Sean, the tour, tour guide, he's like reading off of cue cards and shit. Like he has no idea what he's doing. He's like, uh. You know, in New Orleans, we have to bury the dead above ground in in big mausoleums so they can't get up and walk away. (laughs) And Jim's like, well, actually, isn't it because of the water table? And like this shit happens throughout the movie where it's like, you don't know what you're doing. And it's funny as shit because Sean keeps getting more and more pissed off about it. But uh, eventually they make it to the dock and the dock where uh, they were shooting nights there and a porn was shooting there during the day, not in the movie, like in real life. And they load up on the boat and they get interrupted by a local out in the water. And it's Jack Cracker who yells that the swamp is closed, Victor Crowley, and drinks his own piss. And I guess Beekler really meant what he said about P being funny because, of course, that's him. I don't know who wrote that, but he does drink his own piss. It's apple juice, but. Hey, at least it's warm. Um, (laughs) So the boat then heads off without actually hearing his warning. Only we hear it. So they pass this old spooky house. And Sean starts to tell them it's the home of Victor Crowley, whose own father whacked him in the face with a hatchet on account of him being so ugly or something. Because he's still reading these cards. and He's like just a shitty tour guide. (laughs) And Mary Beth chimes in that that's not the right story and it's not the right house. And she's still being pissy and bitchy. And this pisses Sean off to the point that he goes on an Asian rant. And by Asian, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to specifically say Chinese or anything like that. It's just Asian. Okay. I'm a white guy. Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching the making of the movie and it was the, uh, you know, the behind the scenes camera. And I'm assuming it was the first take because it's the one that's in the movie, but they're filming. And when he just breaks out into that shit, like. They're trying to not die laughing. And as soon as I don't even remember who said cut, I don't even think it was Adam because he's like dying laughing and everybody just laughs and he just looks up like, holy shit, I did it in one go. You know, I don't know it's really funny because everybody's like, what the fuck just happened? Oh, it is so good when he does that shit. So after this, Marcus notices Jen is scratching at her crotch because <laughs> they were like yeah. sitting together on the on the bus and like chatting and he sits next to her in the boat. And it's just this quick <laughs> scratch, scratch, scratch. <laughs> and Marcus is all like, damn, <laughs> that shit is whack. <laughs> and somewhere in here, one of my favorite running gags is about how Ben paid 40 bucks for the tour. 
everybody else keeps talking about the 30 bucks they paid. Yes. <laughs> it's so subtle, but I don't know. That's one of the funnier parts of the, the opening scene of this movie to me. Yes. <laughs> so they eventually stop and Sean turns off the boat and all the lights so they can watch some ghost lights. And once again, <laughs> Jim's like, well, no, it's because of the gas, blah, 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 blah. No, the ghost lights. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Will Smith and Men in Black. It's uh, some swamp gas reflecting off the Venus and shit. <laughs> but after this, he kicks the boat back on and turns the light on, and we can quickly see something darting into the darkness on shore. I mean, you can see that it's a shocked Victor Crowley, and my real question is, was he peeing? What, what was he doing there? <laughs> maybe it was Maybe he was pulling his pud. <laughs> <laughs> But after this, the tour moves on and Ben keeps hitting on Mary Beth with his shitty sob story about how he just got broken up with until the boat runs into a down tree. Then it starts to rain and the boat starts to sink. So things are going real bad real fast here. So they go to cross the down tree to get to the shore <laughs> and Jim slips and first he racks himself. And it's like, oh no, yeah. poor old dude. Then a gator bites his leg. <laughs> it's like, oh no, poor old dude. But then Mary Beth shoots the gator. Saving the day, and everybody decides that getting off the boat is now what they need to do, and they all rush ashore. And I guess he won't be jumping to any conclusions anytime soon. <laughs> he will not. So once on shore, Sean drops the Creole Swampback tour, and uh, Mary Beth says she's looking for her missing father and brother who disappeared in the swamp. She also says they need to get out of the swamp and leads us into the Victor Crowley flashback scene. Mr. Crowley and his pumpkinhead son lived in the woods alone until one Halloween night, some kids tried to scare Victor Crowley out of his house so they could see him. The prank went wrong when their fireworks caught the house on fire. Mr. Crowley came home just in time to see the fire start and tried to cut the door down to free his son, splitting Victor's face with a hatchet in the process. Now, it shows all this. It shows, you know, the kids teasing a young Victor Crowley and everything, and then the infamous night that it happens. And you've got Kane Hodder there as, you know, Mr. Crowley. And uh, it, it ends holding on him where he's just sitting there crying. And, and the, the narration is saying, you know, that he, he just lived alone in the woods after that for 10 years till he died of a broken heart. And uh, the shot of Kane Hodder sitting there crying was one of the, the whole burning down the shed thing and all that was one of the first things they shot. And to, Tamara was actually just out of frame crying with Kane Hodder and actually coached him through that shot. Oh, that's neat. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was very neat. Yeah, because he had no acting experience and Adam Green wanted people to get to see him, right? Like on cameras yep. himself. And, and this, I think this was his first acting scene. So I think it's really neat that one of the actors or actresses in this case uh, decided to coach him through it. That's pretty fucking awesome. Yep. Before this, he just had a couple of one-liners and this, this, he got to actually do shit. And that's something that Green said he really wanted to do. And that's why I love him so much on Holliston because he just plays himself on Holliston and it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mary Beth says that after Victor's father died, people started disappearing in the swamp. And if you go too close to the house, you can still hear Victor Crowley crying for his daddy. Of course, no one believes her. Ben kind of looks at her like he believes her, but I think he just wants her. <laughs> <laughs> Sean chimes in and he's like, oh, we passed that house miles back. Or actually, no, I think he's gone Asian now at this point, because that's going to be important later. Um, he said that they passed the house miles back. That wasn't the house. How do you know? Because that is. <laughs> and they're standing right next to the fucking house. <laughs> I'm going to reference this later in the second film because she has no fucking clue where the house is in the second movie. I know, right? But in this one, she's like, it's right here. You know, 
Somewhere, I think we already passed it, but I love it when they're, I, I think it's when they went by the fake Victor Crowley house and, and Sean like looks away and he's like, oh, oh, and he's like, oh, I hear Victor Crowley now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So uh, they, they pick up the wounded Jim and start heading towards the closest road, which is just past Crowley's house. <laughs> And there's this really long continuous shot because they kind of break up into pairs all walking in a row. And there's this long continuous shot moving up and down through them as there's dialogue going on. Mostly everybody complaining about their situation in different ways. And that poor steady cam operator, BJ, they didn't have the small steady cam. They had the big steady cam that weighed like well over 100 pounds for sure. And they had to do 12 takes of this before they finally got it. And BJ refused to take a break. Like they had somebody pull the camera off the mount to let him catch his breath. They put it back on and shoot again. And BJ's just like, like, go, go. And there's behind the scenes footage of him like sweating as bad as me. Yeah. After doing this so many times. But what a fucking trooper. I just know that it was so hard walking up and down the hill backwards. Yeah. That Adam was going to cut the fucking scene. Yep. And, and just shoot it a different way. And BJ's like, no, I got this, man. And he got it at some point. But yeah, it, it does look cool. But people don't um, give enough credit to like the camera operator sometimes. So. I know. Which Adam Green did. He actually put, I don't remember if it's this movie or the second one, but he put BJ as camera operator in the opening credits, which is something that hasn't been done in decades. Yep. Because he worked so hard on the movie. So. So as they're all making this walk complaining, they suddenly hear it. And without much warning, Victor Crowley just comes tearing ass right out of the house, runs up to Jim and starts chopping his arm off through the shoulder. (laughs) Just like that. We're 45 minutes into the movie now. And the last 45-ish minutes are just going to be a rinse and repeat, honestly. But here we go. So after the arm chopping, Crowley, and I'm going to, I don't like saying Crowley because I think that's Mr. Crowley. So I'm probably going to say Victor a lot. I may say hatchet face. I may say hatchet. I don't know. But just just pretend I'm talking about Jason Voorhees. Um, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes chasing down Jim's wife and grabs her fucking mouth and rips her head open like a fucking tin can. This is not CGI. Everything in this movie, as far as the kills go, is all 100% practical. And it's awesome. And it was done on a shoestring budget and you can tell in some spots, but I don't care. It's just so old school and so great. Yeah. It's just really cool. Cause the camera spins around like matrix style <laughs> as he's grabbing the actress's jaw, like on both sides to pull it. And then it goes to his back and you can kind of tell the little quick cut there where they yes. shift and then it goes around and he's got the dummy. It looks fucking awesome though. It's like the raddest kill in the movie to me. Yeah. I haven't seen fake flesh tear like that since the thing. I mean, honestly, that that's what I can compare that, that, that face tear to. Yeah. So of course the group scatters, but Mary Beth does manage to shoot Victor in the chest before running off. They regroup except for Marcus who they find in a tree where he thinks they all should be. I guess they think slashers can't climb fucking trees or something. That's the idea. Cause like green says, you know, Marcus's character is supposed to be the voice of reason. The one that's like, we should leave. We shouldn't fuck with this. We shouldn't be here. We should wait in a tree till morning. Like nobody's listening to him though. If only the killer didn't have a thing that was made for cutting down trees as a weapon. But what's funny is we've already seen the only hatchet kill in the movie. If you think about it, but In all this commotion, they realize that Shapiro is missing. So we cut to him running blindly, camera bag in hand. 
and he drops the bag and trips. There's a story about the the shot of the bag landing under the bush, which I got to tell because they sent the movie off for color correction. And when it came back, it was too dark. You couldn't see what happened there. It was just dark. And they kept arguing with different studios where they kept sending it off for color correction that like, you no bullshit. We're going to be able to see this bag. They have to find the bag later. This is important. You're full of shit. We know we shot it with enough light. So eventually they went to go get it done again and had lost the fucking negative. <laughs> and they said, fuck it. And two weeks before the movie was released, reshot this shit in the woods. <laughs> oh, the one shot of the bag falling under the bush. I just think that shit's funny. So uh, the group decides to move on. Meanwhile, we cut back to Shapiro. And this is what this is going to be. This is going to be a lot of run, stop, run, stop. Meanwhile, for the rest of the movie. So meanwhile, <laughs> Shapiro runs <laughs> right into Victor who twists his head off and it's that quick. He just runs into him, twists his head all the way around and pops it off and it's hanging by some skin. That's fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the group on their walk, Marcus starts just tearing into Sean about his fake ass swamp tour and his fake ass Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker. I think I heard a little bit of Emerald in their fucking accent. <laughs> and then Sean just starts talking like you're plain old average American. And a fist fight breaks out until Jenna points out Shapiro's camera bag that they're standing next to. Now, Perry Shin did not want to do the whole going from Creole to Asian. That's all Adam Green wrote. And he's like, this is stereotypical. I'm not comfortable doing this. Like, he gave him this whole thing about it. <laughs> and Green's like, I don't care. It's fucking funny. And uh, he's like, you know what? How about later on in the film, I go ahead and change to my actual voice and that will just lend more credence to the fact that I'm that fake because I'm not talking like a stereotypical movie Asian for the rest of the fucking film. And Green's like, that's better writing than I did. We'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so in Shapiro's bag, they go looking and like Marcus and Ben are tearing through. It's like, what are you doing? It's like looking for this. And they find a flashlight and uh, they also find an ID and it says Samuel Barrett, which is actually Will Barrett's son's name. So he's a, a, his son's an aspiring porn director, I guess. <laughs> and they realize that he was just some perv with a fake story to film chicks. Samuel M. Barrett, Whitman Diagnostics, senior marketing manager, Doug Shapiro, producer, director. So he didn't really work for Bayou Beavers? I'm thinking no. The plan all along was to use Girls Gone Wild, and they shot it with him referring to Girls Gone Wild. And once the movie was done, they gave it to him for final review and approval. And Girls Gone Wild said, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, they were smart enough that every scene where they needed to say the name, they shot it like seven different ways. And Bayou Beavers was the one that won by the time it was all okay. said and done. <laughs> so they move on, you know, walking, running, walking, running. And they stumble across Shapiro's corpse, like literally, like I think either Ben or Marcus trips over it. And another freak out ensues until they're interrupted by the Dawson's Creek theme playing in the distance. It's Misty cell phone. This was meant to be the Buffy theme <laughs> or the angel theme, but neither one of them came through clear enough as a ringtone when they were doing it, the setup with the boom box to actually use it. I don't know why they didn't just overdub it, but anyways, that's what green says. They, <laughs> they played it, played it from a boom box to make it sound lo-fi and he, fuck it. She was on an episode of Dawson's Creek. We'll use that. <laughs> <laughs> So Misty's like, holy shit, I got service and tries to make a phone call. And she's asking, you know, what is it? 911 down here. And they're like, are you a fucking idiot? And she's like, well, we're in the South. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jenna makes a joke about the South earlier. That I forget what it is because <laughs> they're they're ragged on the South when they get a chance. Anyways, so she's fucking around with her phone. And meanwhile, they realize they've walked right back to the house. <laughs> 
That kid is back on the escalator again. I am not stopping to say how cliche, because it would I'd say it too many times. The point of this part of the point of this movie supposedly was to use the cliches. So we're just gonna let it ride for now at least. Do we have to? For now at least. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben and Mary Beth go into the shed next to the house to look for weapons because she's running low on ammo. And they find a shovel and a pitchfork. Oh, and Mary Beth's dead family. And uh, <laughs> Jesus. And that's about how abrupt it is for everybody. Just back there with the dustpan and the broom. <laughs> Wait, what? How did we just walk into midsummer? I don't know. So meanwhile, the uh, I love this shot. The others notice something moving in the bushes. And it's this real wide shot where everybody, all the characters are in the right of frame and the shaken bushes in the left of frame. And they eventually convince Marcus to investigate because he's the one holding the flashlight. And as he goes over to the bush and realizes it's a raccoon, Victor Crowley reaches in from just out of frame on the opposite side of the screen, grabs Jenna and goes to town on her face with a gas powered belt sander. I mentioned this before. Yep. This is my favorite kill in the movie because I've never seen anything like this before. It's a gas powered belt sander. Forget what it does to her face. That's just a cool, useless, totally illogical implement that I haven't seen before. <laughs> I like how we say implements now because the dude from fucking Halloween was the farm implements. I know, right? <laughs> so Mary Beth comes running up and smacks him in the face with a shovel and she drops the shovel in the process. So Victor grabs it, chops off Sean's leg, which is a great shot because you're like decapitation. No, <laughs> he cuts his <laughs> leg off at the fucking knee. And then he scoops his head off, plowing the shovel into the ground, turns around and grabs Jenna, who's trying to crawl away with half of her face gone and uh, just picks her up and impales her on the shovel and then gives her an extra two pushes down. By the way, this is a good time for me to bring up. I don't know about you, but I watched the unrated version. That's the only version of these movies I have. I don't own these films and I had to watch them on Amazon Prime, all four of them, and they are the rated versions. But... I did a little research, and the only thing I could find from my digging is that there is blood and gore cut out, no yeah. story differences. So Yeah, they just stayed on shit longer, because like him pushing her down, like because he goes on a rant about it. The MPAA says, you, he, <laughs> throughout the commentary, he's like, so you can have rape, you can have this, you can have this. All that's fine in an R-rated movie, but pushing a corpse down two times on a a piece of wood can't have that. That's too disturbing. Um, so that's the kind of shit that was cut out. Like you're saying, it was some gore and some gratuitous yeah. buckets of blood on trees <laughs> were cut out. Well, that's funny that you say that just this scene is one example. He just picks her up and he just slams on the shovel and slides her down. Like it's one fluid yep. go in the R rated version, the buckets of blood. I'm glad you brought that up because I have a joke later about it being like his Quentin Tarantino foot fetish scene with buckets of blood, just getting thrown on walls and trees. And I assumed that was put in in place of whatever the MPAA cut out. No, <laughs> no, it existed as well. Huh? Yep. He just does it a lot. <laughs> so of course they run off and then stop to talk. Cause that's, what's going to happen for the rest of the movie. Like I said, and Victor literally pops up into frame while they're talking, like right in the middle of the fucking screen <laughs> <laughs> while they're arguing about which way to go. <laughs> and Ben manages to stab him with his pitchfork as they're running off. So they stop again. <laughs> and Ben points out, hey, he went down when you shot him. He went down when I stabbed him. Ghost or not, I think we might be able to hurt him. Let's actually make a stand and fight. And Ben takes Missy's lighter. And he says he saw some gas cans back in the shed at the house. And they make a plan to torch his ass. We're into the short-ass third act, guys. 
So Ben heads into the shed while Mary Beth and Marcus stand guard. And Misty kind of hangs back a bit because she's refusing to get any closer to the house. Smartest thing she's done the entire film. I know, right? Because, yeah, she really is like your stereotypical dumb blonde throughout the movie. I didn't want to hang on. If I hang on the girls, it'd be way too much. Just watch the movie because like Jesse said, their banter, it may be the best back and forth between two characters in the fucking film. (laughs) So the guard duo is calling out Victor and uh, because they're trying to lure him in to get gassed and torched. And they suddenly see Misty's jacket in a tree over near where Misty used to be standing. Meanwhile, Hmm. her head and torso are thrown at Ben in the shed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Mary Beth comes charging in with a little little garden rake thing that I still don't know the actual name of those things, but there's got to be a name for them. And fucking jams it in the back of Victor Crowley's head and is kind of holding him still there while Ben pours gas all over his ass. And they run out of the shed. Ben hits the Zippo, throws it in. Victor Crowley bursts into flames, collapses, and dies. Credits. No. It starts to fucking rain, and it puts him out, causing the group to run off yet again. You gotta be fucking kidding me! I fucking love that scene, and I think it's so ingenious. And and seeing how giddy adam was on the making of the movie about filming that scene and after he wrote it and seeing it it's just so awesome because you don't see something like that in the movie you know like like the nerdy guys the hero he just won oh fuck it's raining the fire got put out (laughs) yes so this time when they go running off instead of going in a circle they go into a small cemetery where of course burn up victor crowley pops up yet again Hmm. And he ends up kind of pouncing on and falling on Ben. And you get this shot of him like just straight up drooling in Ben's <laughs> mouth, which is supposedly really Kane Hodder drooling in Joel David Moore's mouth. Cool. And Mary Beth kicks him off. But as he rolls over, he grabs Marcus. And then Ben and Mary Beth are grabbing Marcus too, trying to trying to pull him back. But uh, it doesn't work out. And uh, what happens to Marcus? Marcus ends up getting his fucking arm ripped off. And no, both of his arms ripped off. (laughs) And then Victor picks him up and slams what's left of his body into a mausoleum for more gore. There's a term that I I hear often. I don't use myself, but I'm going to apply it in this category. And that is that Victor Crowley is an absolute fucking unit. (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to him just like just being this big jack burly motherfucker just coming in and, and wrecking people and just ripping them apart it's fucking crazy yeah it is well it's it's like jason with no pause <laughs> <laughs> so while this is going on ben and mary beth run away yet again <laughs> but ben has to stop and puke after what just happened and like when this movie was brought up before I'm going to bring it up again. Joel David Moore's like, I hate it. I hate the fake puke. I think I could make myself puke. Can I try to make myself puke? And uh, he did it by gagging himself with his fingers down his throat for one take. And then Adam Green says that they, they put orange juice and cold clam chowder in a cup and tried to get him to drink it. And just smelling it made him hork again. <laughs> <laughs> and just hearing it nearly made me hork. So after the puking, Mary Beth says she can hear water running. And Ben's like, that's just my vomit. No, she actually hears a river. (laughs) (laughs) And they head that way. And at the water's edge, a cemetery gate post javelin comes flying in out of nowhere and right through Ben's foot, pinning him in place. (laughs) Yeah, because there is a brief shot of Victor Crowley grabbing the cemetery gate as we're cutting back and forth to them running off that you 
once you put see the movie, you know what's going on. But yeah, which Friday the Thirteenth movie is it where where we get the javelin kill? Because they did. <laughs> if I stop on everyone, it'll take too long. But come on, it's a straight up fucking Jason Voorhees move. That's funny. I was just thinking of Lamar in Revenge of the Nerds chunking the javelin the whole time. <laughs> I'll take both. <laughs> So Victor screams and does a full on bull charge at Ben and Mary Beth, but they manage to push the fence post towards Victor as he rushes and he impales himself on it and then does a death rattle blood spurt (laughs) right into Ben's face yet again. Yeah. (laughs) And kudos to them for actually, they don't show it, but they, you can tell it happens. They physically rip Ben's foot out from the post and head on on their merry way. And they spot daddy's rowboat from the beginning of the movie and they row (laughs) off into the moonlight. The end. Nope. Again. (laughs) (laughs) It's like fucking Lord of the Rings. It's got so many endings. (laughs) Jason fucking Voorhees. I mean, Victor pops up out of the water. (laughs) I know. Grabs Mary Beth and pulls her all the way down to the bottom of the river. But she looks up and sees Ben's hand reaching down in the water. And she says she's not going to give up. And she fights her way up to the surface. (laughs) And she grabs Ben's hand. And Ben pulls her on the boat. Holy shit, it's Victor holding Ben's severed arm. (laughs) (laughs) And he grabs Mary Breath. And she screams her head off. And she looks over. And she sees fucked up, bleeding out Ben on the boat. Hard cut to black and credits. And that really is the end of the movie. (laughs) It's so fucking jarring and weird. And... Would have been a horrible ending if it was not able to make a sequel to this movie. <laughs> yes. Good thing this was actually planned to be this way because it is, huh? Like, did the internet just go out? What just happened? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. My wife turned me on to it. Hatchet was the first thing of of Adam Green's that she had seen. And then, of course, I went off into his other shit and Holliston and everything. And uh, kind of like you've said, you know, I like the guy. I like the guy more than I like his movies. I'll fucking admit it. But this guy really is a horror fan. And yeah, he got to get his foot in the door and make a movie. And with an ending like that, you got to have a fucking sequel. So that ended up leading us to Hatchet 2 in 2010. All right. So Hatchet 2. I guess we'll dive in this movie and then we'll kind of pick them apart here at the end. Of course, it was written and directed by Adam Green, Holliston, Hatchet franchise, Frozen, Friday the 13th, the video game, etc. Right? Yep. And for our cast, we have Mary Beth, now played by Danielle Harris, who, of course, started out with Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, Last Boy Scout, Roseanne, and then what we all know her from, Halloween 4 and 5, and then Rob Zombie's Halloween 1 and 2. Yeah. And they could not reach an agreement with the actress that played Mary Beth in the first film to come back. And I've heard multiple different things. And Adam Green is very tactful in all the interviews and just says it didn't work out. But I've heard money was the thing. Like she thought she's like big star now, right? Like yep. I love this much money. And it's like, no. And Daniel Harris was actually Adam Green's first choice to play Mary Beth in the first film. And she even came and read for it and he loved it. But somebody, I don't remember if it was a studio exec or his you know, producer that helped him make the movie that was his buddy he grew up with. But they're like, look, you got Kane Hodder. You got Tony Todd. You got Robert England. Like how many horror legends can you throw into a movie at once before it, it just looks like you're trying too hard? 
And that's where he drew the line. And honestly, the actress that played Mary Beth in the first film was fantastic. In yeah, the she role, was fun. I, I really, I really liked her in it. Yeah, I'm never going to complain about seeing Daniel Harris in something, but that that was the story there, and and what happened. And there's going to be a few reoccurring names here. We got Tony Todd as Reverend Zombie, of course. Motherfucking Candyman, who's in the Crow, Final Destination series. We all know who Tony Todd is. Just like who we all know Kane Hodder is, who plays Victor and Thomas Crowley, Jason Voorhees. I mean, enough said there. <laughs> Perry Shin is back, but not as Sean. He's back as <laughs> Justin, Sean's brother. I love which we'll get to that in a bit. I know, I know. And uh, lots of TV, just like Josh said earlier. One that blew my mind when I saw this movie for the first time last week. Tom Holland is Uncle Bob. Yeah. And Tom Holland has a special place in my heart and and not for being an actor, but for being writer and director who's brought us things like Psycho 2, Thinner, Child's Play, Fright Night, which was on my top 10 list earlier, (laughs) as well as Tom Holland's Terror Time, which was my original name for this podcast until I saw that Tom Holland had thought of it before me. What a dick. So. Glad to see him in here. And here's a name I'm about to butcher. We have (laughs) R.A. Milholoff as Trent, and he's fucking Leatherface from at least Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I know at least started there. Maybe he has Leatherface in other films, but it's like Kane Hodder stepping in as Jason in, you know, Friday the 13th 5 or whichever one it was. He's Leatherface to a lot of people, and he's just playing like a gator hunter guy in this. We have AJ Bowen as Layton, and I didn't know the guy other than seeing him in Your Next. I remembered him from that. But when I looked at his credits, I saw House of the Devil, Satanic Panic. So he's done a lot of indie horror movies. There was more in there, but those were the, the three that stood out. Yep. And he has the, uh, I don't even think you brought it up, but he has the hat on with the little smiley face logo that's on Ben's shirt in the first movie, which is a comic shop where... Adam Green used to hang out and get a lot of his horror shit, I think. Yep, up in Boston. We have Alexis Kendra as Avery, and she was in a bunch of random shit, but one thing that stood out was Big Ass Spider. She's in that, which we mentioned that movie in um, Trick or Treat, right? Love that movie. We have Ed Ackerman as Cletus, and he's been in just a shit ton of TV, right? (laughs) Nothing stood out, but he's just like a random guy on lots of TV shows. David Foy is Chad, random shit. He doesn't even have a picture on IMDb. So, (laughs) (laughs) and here was an interesting one to me. Colton Dunn as Vernon cannot fucking stand his character in this movie. (laughs) I can see maybe after I watch it a few times, it grows. He would grow on me, but I love him on the TV show Superstore. And he was on Key and Peele. He's part of Rooster Teeth. He was on Parks and Rec. He's a fucking hilarious actor. And I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the writing or I don't want to say that. But like, I, I just don't know. I don't like his character that much in this movie. <laughs> it happens. We have Rick McCallum as John. He's very quiet throughout the film. And he's a stunt coordinator and stuntman. So I'm sure he's done lots of horror movies if I did some digging, but <laughs> that was, um, that was his main claim to fame. And I believe it said that he did some stunt coordinating for, for hatchet. So I, I know that Kane was like the stunt coordinator, but I believe Rick might've actually been on that film as well as a stunt coordinator. I'm assuming when Kane was busy, okay, you know, being Victor. Right. And the last person to mention is John Carl Beekler as Jack Cracker. Cause it's just fucking awesome to see the man in a movie. Yes. And as far as special effects go, we have Robert Pendergraft, 
doing the primary makeup and prosthetics and whatnot. And he worked under Beekler for years. And that includes the original hatchet film. And Adam thought he was really talented and told him he should uh, maybe go out on his own and, and do the effects on this movie himself just to showcase his skill set. Cause Adam likes to, to put people in the front that, that aren't normally there and he could and pay he him less money. Working. Exactly. <laughs> I think that was the primary goal there. And he ended up working out of his either aunt or grandmother's garage to make everything. Nice. And he did special effects for Holliston and the rest of the hatchet franchise from here on out. And I want to mention Riley Vanderbilt from team unicorn because she won plays young Victor Crowley in any hatchet flashback. Yep. A lot of people don't know that, but Riley from team unicorn is, is that character and under the, the prosthetics. And she also did makeup and special effects in this movie. Yep. And if I remember correctly, she's one of the two team unicorn people in the saber video. Yes. Which would make sense. Right. Yep. And her and green, she's the one that her and green ended up married. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I know they started dating during the first movie, and I'm pretty sure they got married and divorced. Okay. And most of my behind-the-scenes stuff is in my movie synopsis, but I have a couple little things here at the beginning. The plan was always to make more Hatchet films than the first one, and Adam was able to get everyone back on board except for Tamara, you know, who was replaced with Daniel Harris, including the original crew, who all had a lot more experience under their belt now for – doing hatchet as well as other things with Adam green and in other avenues. So he, he was able to get everybody back, which is not common in this industry. No, and I thought that was worth mentioning him and Kevin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> the movie was shot in 17 days. That's brutal. I know. I know. And this one was actually filmed on a set, which on the making of, they were quite impressed with, but to me, it looks like they're walking in front of a bunch of fake plants for most of the movie. They are. <laughs> <laughs> but with all that being said, let's dive into the movie. We open up right where the previous movie ended with Mary Beth struggling with Victor Crowley at the boat. Only if you have a keen eye, you'll notice that Mary Beth is no longer played by Tamara Zaragoza, but Daniel Harris instead. We see her swimming as she seems to have lost Victor Crowley until she is grabbed off screen by John Carl Beekler, Jack Cracker, right? <laughs> Not Victor Crowley. And. Gordon, the fisherman, takes her back to his fish shack. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the yellow fucking poncho does, on and everything. He's missing an eye now, though. And we can see that the captain of this boat, Jack Cracker, is trying to help Mary Beth warm up and says he does not understand why people keep coming to Honey Island Swamp because it's been closed for decades and with good reason. Mary Beth is telling him how everyone was killed by him, and now she wants to find her brother and father, as Jack explains to her that he doesn't even think she believes in the legends, right? And she explains that her dad and brother were night fishing, and he tells her that they should know better, right? Like, all fishermen know to avoid this island. Yep. And and by night fishing, they're hunting for gators. Let's, let's call it what it is. But um, he says that, hell, he doesn't even go there. I always tell him, I say, stay the hell out. They all call me crazy. Oh, Harbinger. He is a Harbinger. Good point. I didn't even think about that. Nope. Fucking checking a box off right there. <laughs> but th this is funny. I'm going to say it the way I wrote my notes. <laughs> okay. And then I had a realization after rewatching Hatchet for a third time. He gives her a jug of something warm to drink that I could only imagine was a piss jug. 
and she keeps putting it up to her mouth to take a swig and then we'll stop to talk just before taking the swig each time. And it's a really funny, subtle gag. And I, for some reason, the first two times I'd watched the movie, one of them being a long time ago with Josh, did not catch Jack Cracker even being in the first film, let alone <laughs> the drinking piss gag. So... I just assumed it was piss and then immediately watched Hatchet one the next night and realized that, that it was definitely piss. But it's a really funny gag. That's great. But Jack Cracker explains that he needs to get her back to wherever the hell she came from and to see a doctor. But she wants to go to the police and he lets her know that, that won't do any good, right? And he asks her for a name. And when she says Mary Beth Dunstan, he realizes that she's Samson's kid and he wants her to get the hell out of his fish shack, right? <laughs> And we find out that he did not know her father, but he knows what he did. And then he keeps himself to himself and that the ghost lets him be. And he doesn't want any part of this. She does not understand what's going on. And she just wants answers from him. Right. And he gives her directions to get out of the swamp and orders her out via shotgun. He does, however, tell her to go see Reverend Zombie if she wants any answers and sends her on her way. And he kind of peeks out through the window. Right to make sure she's leaving and, and he watches her head off his property and he wants to go take a look at the Knights hall. Cause I guess he collects shit that tourists leave out of the swamp and he busts out Doug Shapiro's camera bag from the first film. And he starts watching it and he sees all the booby vids on there and he's having a good time with them until he finds a video of him stalking a girl at a school. And she says, Hey man, leave me alone. I'm only 14. Oh, that ain't right. That's Laura Ortiz. Who's that? She's a main character on Holliston. And she, uh, one of the things she's most known for is the fast talking girl from the old Verizon commercials. I think it was Verizon. Oh yeah. She's a fucking hoot on Holliston. And I just want to say that we are glad that we were able to get John Beekler's voice on the show, not once, but twice in this episode, because we mention him so often. So it was fun to, to, to fit him on here. Yep. But anyways, he makes it to a funny video of Misty and Jenna who were in the first film. And Jenna's making fun of Misty for saying hermaphrodite without knowing the meaning of the word, right? And <laughs> <laughs> the scene's hilarious. Just watch it if you hadn't seen it. Like I said, all four of these films are on Amazon Prime right now for streaming. But he's startled by a sound and grabs a shotgun, but is still caught off guard by Victor Crowley, who punches him in the stomach, grabs his large intestine, and yanks it out of his body and holds on to it as Jack Cracker runs off and he continues to pull it out further. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, it is. Victor then reels him in by his intestine and chokes him to death with his own large intestine until his head pops off and we get the patented Adam Green blood bucket splattered on the wall. And if you've seen season two of The Boys, you cannot unsee Love Sausage here. <laughs> we now dive into the opening credits. With just one fix playing from ministry, like he had to make sure he threw some metal in here. <laughs> we go through the swamp at a fast pace, seeing all the gore and carnage from the first film. You can see different body parts and clothes and stuff that you recognize if you pay attention. Yep. And we end on Adam Green in his outfit from the first film, vomiting on the sidewalk. We're now in New Orleans proper, and we see Mary Beth walking through the streets of New Orleans right past Adam Green, I like the cut, until she gets to Reverend Zombie's voodoo shop. And he tries to brush her off until she convinces him to let her in, and she lets him know that Jack Cracker sent her. And as she walks through the shop, if you pay attention to the background, you can see a Jack Chop display, 
and news footage on the TV showing the survivor from the movie Frozen that I haven't seen yet, but I, I did find a note about that. So she Fuck lets it. him know that <laughs> <laughs> fucking Bill Burr over here. Oh, couldn't resist. What's funny is I never noticed either one of those things until this watch for the podcast. And I'm like, hey, it's a jack job. Hey, what's all the news? <laughs> I literally, I saw the camera go by and I go, that's that fucking Jack Shop thing Josh was talking about. And then I went, and that's how I found out he did the Saber video. Because oh, I, okay. I, I looked up Jack Shop and it pulled up the Aeroscope YouTube channel. Yep. And his top trailer for it's the Saber video. Yep. Which I've seen that thing a hundred times. I'm a huge Team Unicorn fan. It's just really funny, the uh, intermingling here. I know, right? You should love this guy. You just don't have to love his movies. <laughs> I actually like the movies now, but not because they're good movies. I'm gonna say later. <laughs> Anyways, but she lets him know that she was on a boat tour and that everyone on the boat was killed. And Reverend Zombie seems really concerned for the loss of life here. But <laughs> we find out that he's more concerned that Sean lost his fucking boat, right? <laughs> and he explains that these are illegal tours. And she says that he reminds her of her daddy. And when he finds out who her father was, he wants to know exactly what happened at that point. Right. Yep. But as she's telling the story in more detail, you can just hear Reverend zombie repeating that Samson Dunson is gone. He just, Samson's gone, you know, and, and he just keeps saying it in that very Tony Todd voice. And he then tells her the story about a long time ago when he was a child that Thomas Crowley lived in the woods and his wife was sick with cancer. And that Lena, a Cajun woman, would come to help take care of his wife. And they ended up having an affair as his wife was dying in, in the next room, basically. They were banging, right? And the affair continued for quite some time until Cheyenne Crowley, his wife, seems to finally succumb to her illness and die. And Lena and Thomas embrace in this flashback scene, which is, of course, Kane Hodder playing Thomas again. Yeah. And we then see his wife, Cheyenne, stand up and start spitting out a voodoo curse that she puts on Lena and their bastard child. And we find out that on the day that Victor Crowley was born, the swamp experienced some odd weather patterns. They say that on the day Victor Crowley was born, the swamp mourned. The trees wept. The wildlife became sickly and died. His presence was like a pestilence that turned the area into death. We find out that Victor Crowley was born deformed and is described by Reverend Zombie as a living monster and that Lena died the moment she set her eyes on Victor. Nice. The legend was that Thomas hid Victor as he grew up to protect him but the truth was he was really trying to hide his infidelity and his curse from others. However, Thomas grew to love his son over the years. And that's when we arrive at the tragic Halloween night where the three boys set the fire, causing Thomas to accidentally kill his son. <laughs> One, that's punny. Two, isn't the writer supposed to save all this revealing of the backstory shit for the third installment? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe usually in a, in a trilogy, in a trilogy, you're right. But there are four of these motherfuckers. And according to Daniel Harris, there's two more coming. Yeah. And there was a time when green said that four was never going to happen. What it did. Yeah. <laughs> but we find out that the parents protected the three boys that were responsible for the accident. And eventually Thomas died 
And this is when Victor Crowley becomes a repeater, we'll find out later, haunting the swamp each night, trying to find his daddy, right? I should have just put those kids on that bus from Trick or Treat. <laughs> yeah, 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 the mask kind of made me think of that. <laughs> it does. But we then get a montage of people getting murdered brutally by Victor Crowley in the swamp, as Reverend Zombie says that to this day, no one knows the total body account. And there are, I'm not going to go through the list, but there's a couple celebrities that I'm assuming Adam's friends with, but I know him from other movies and shows. He just threw buddies in to get killed, apparently. <laughs> the key takeaway from the story is that her father was one of the three boys that set the fire at the Crowley cabin. And he knows this because he was supposed to be there with them that night and chickened out himself. So apparently... Uh-huh. Reverend Zombie was friends with uh, with the Dunstans. Mary Beth says that Victor Crowley looked at her like he knew her, and Reverend Zombie says maybe he did or maybe she imagined it, but he then explains to her what a repeater is, which is basically just a, a angry spirit that returns every night to a location looking for something and can't be killed, right? Yeah, Jason Voorhees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also want to point out, I'm glad you said that because I meant to say this in the first movie. Victor Crowley was a small child when he got axed in the face and yes. then comes back as a big burly motherfucker, which at least in Friday the 13th, they played it off as he never died as a kid and lived in the woods, right? This is accurate. I don't fucking know. He ate his Wheaties or something. He hulked out, but wrestling gators. Anyways, exactly. <laughs> but at this point, Mary Beth is angered that he sent a boat out there just for money and he explains that Sean was not supposed to get that close to the cabin, right? And he says they've been doing tours there for months and haven't had a single incident. And he blames her for knowing the legends and going in there anyways and tells her that she is lucky for seeing the face of Victor Crowley and getting to live because nobody else gets to say that, right? <laughs> and at this point, she begs him to take her back to the island to get her family so, so that she can give him a proper burial. And he gives her a speech about revenge not being a way to live life. And, and, and she says that it's honestly about her family. And then puts the icing on the cake with, if she can take that monster out, then all the better, right? <laughs> and Reverend Zombie lets her know that you can't kill Victor Crowley because anytime you take him down, he just returns back to the state that he was killed in, right? Yeah. Which should be a small child, like I said earlier, and not the Hulk. But Well, well to be fair, he was at least a teen when he was killed. <laughs> okay, okay. It was Riley from Team Unicorn, so it wasn't that big. No, no, I'm talking about in the fire flashback scene when he actually gets axed in the face. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, hatcheted in the face. It's an axe. Accidentally. I'll allow it. Like you said, accidentally. <laughs> but no matter what Reverend Zombie tells her about not being able to kill a repeater, she still wants to give it a try. But I am going to bury that hatchet deep into his fucking face. And I just want to say something about Daniel Harris in this movie. Her trying to do, thank God, (laughs) the accent. She does it fine. Her impersonating Tamara from the first movie. She's done a pretty good job of it, but it's so weird hearing her do it. And so out of place because it's coming from her. And and you know how she speaks that I don't know. I almost wish they would have just not cared about the accent. Let her talk. The Southern drawl is is a bit much, but at least she believes everything she's saying. I I because she could fucking act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do want to say it's really weird and creepy that when she has upset, concerned, scared, and angry faces, 
She looks just like she did in Halloween 4 and 5. She does. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, she could go right back to that place. <laughs> That's her move. <laughs> she looks like a grown-ass woman, because she is. But she can, when she makes the faces, because we saw such a range of emotions from her in Halloween 4 and 5, that I can just picture mute Daniel Harris in Halloween 5 looking for her sister and the upset face, and you see her make that throughout the swamp yep and i don't know it's just really crazy but but at this point she basically blackmails reverend zombie to take her because she said she can report him to the police for doing illegal tours and lead them to a boat that he sent in there that is full of dead tourists right so at this point he has no choice but to agree with her and he says that he needs people with guns and he has a group of specific people that he trusts and he wants them and he recommends that she brings someone that she knows and trusts perhaps even an uncle, right? He's very specific on that. I know, I know. This is some of the worst writing out of the four movies, honestly. <laughs> like this little clip here. Because he says he'll only take her if she agrees to bring her uncle. And it's like, how are you not catching on to this? Like, what does he even know about your uncle, right? But she agrees to go home, take a shower, think about it, and call her uncle and leaves. We then see Reverend Zombie get very angry and start yelling as Sean's brother Justin comes downstairs that looks a lot like Sean from the first <laughs> film. And he sends him out to go gather some hunters. Back at Mary Beth's apartment or house or whatever, of course, Adam Green stuck her straight into a shower scene, right? Because I've listened to the movie Crypt. I know about his huge Daniel Harris crush, right? And on the making of the movie, it's really funny because they're trying to shoot the scene and he can't figure out why it looks like she has pants on. <laughs> so he sends in, I can't think of her name, but the, the female producer that helped him make the first movie, right? Uh, he Sarah. sends her in there to check on her. Yeah, yeah. But he sends her in there to go check on her and they figure out it's her giant ass tattoo she has going down her leg. <laughs> right? And it looks yep. funny through the shower curtain. So he makes her turn around so that they can uh, shoot the scene. And she's frightened by somebody coming in the house. And we find out that it's her uncle Bob coming in because she called him and he is portrayed by Tom Holland. But Mary Beth in her twisted sister shirt explains what Reverend Zombie said to her uncle Bob. And Bob explains to her that he's a scam artist and a crook. The only thing he's reverent of is being an asshole. He then explains to her that he's now responsible for her since her father is gone. And he does not want her going into that swamp. And she says that Reverend Zombie said for her to bring him along and... She wants to prove to her Uncle Bob that Victor Crowley is real, and he just wants her to go to the police in a hospital, right? Yep. And she says that she'll think about it, right? And he leaves. And then Mary Beth ignores her uncle's wishes and heads to Reverend Zombie's shop, where a group of hunters have gathered, and they are a real rogues gallery of people here. <laughs> and we also find out that Justin does a worse accent than his brother. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to sound French. It's so bad. Like at least the Cajun thing, you could tell that it was like if a poor actor, terrible actor did a uh, Cajun accent, right? There's something in it, and it was a joke in its own way. Not saying yeah. he's a bad actor, but I just mean the way no, he did no. the accent. But the French one you can tell is intended to be bad. Yes. <laughs> if you pay attention throughout the scene, especially when they're passing the cookies around, you got some director cameos in here. Yeah, you do. You got Marcus Dustin who's famous for the Feast and Collector series, right? Yep. Got Lloyd Kaufman of Troma fame and Ryan Schifrin, who did Abominable and Tells Halloween. I don't remember which skit. Oh, it was the uh, Rusty Rex skit. I don't know why yeah. I called it a skit, but that's a 
And there are a few other writers and stunt coordinators in here. If you pay attention or know who they are, do a little bit of research on it. But it's kind of neat. He stuck them on there as, as hunters. You got Mike Mendez in there, too. Okay, I didn't catch him in there. Yep. But at this point, we're introduced to Avery and Layton. And we can tell that they had a thing together. And we find out they're both there for the 500 bucks that Reverend Zombie promised them. And Layton wants to make it really clear that he's getting married. And it's somebody else, not Avery, right? <laughs> and... Also in the scene, we meet Trent and Vernon, which is, you know, Leatherface and dude from Superstore that I was talking about earlier. Yep. And Reverend Zombie enters the room with lots of theatrics and flair and starts to lay the shit on real thick. And he lets everyone know that he's offering them 500 bucks if they're willing to help him get his boat back that he lost. And he lets them know that it was on Honey Swamp Island and some of them start to become very reluctant. And he explains that he'll take full legal responsibility for anything that happens there. And as soon as they ask what they're hunting, and he says Victor Crowley, most of them piece the fuck out. <laughs> and I don't remember if it's in my notes anywhere, so I just want to say this. Adam said that Tony Todd is just like such an actor, and he's so into this that he comes up with like a giant binder of notes that he's written, like on top of the script, right, for his character. And he would regularly, you know, start texting Adam at like 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, the night before they're supposed to be shooting a scene as he's going over it again. <laughs> And there's a long text chain that's basically Tony Todd saying, does Reverend Zombie know voodoo? And Adam says, no. And then he goes, does he think he knows voodoo? And Adam says, no. And then Tony says, does he want other people to think that he thinks that he knows voodoo? And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. And he's like, I, I didn't get the line of questioning. And then when you watch how Tony Todd filmed these scenes, the way he'll act like he's looking in the future and stuff like that, he's doing it in a way where he knows he doesn't have power and he knows that everybody else around him knows that he doesn't have power, but he wants everybody around him to think that he thinks he actually has the power. And I know this sounds crazy, but if you keep that in mind as you watch him throughout this movie in particular, it's fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was, that was one of my favorite behind the scenes things. No, no, that because that whole character, that's all him. Going back to the first one, like the face makeup over the one eye, that had nothing to do with green. Tony Todd showed up like that. He's like, I think Reverend Zombie would do this. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like how he took the character. Anyways, gushing on Tony Todd enough. Reverend Zombie seems to really want Trent to stay. So he tries to sweeten the pot with him and offer him extra money, even though Trent really didn't want to go because of his history he says but they leave it at that <laughs> once that's taken care of uncle bob shows up really mad that mary beth is there and we can see that he really does not give a shit about reverend zombie or any of his shit that he's spewing out right and he agrees that he will go to the island with mary beth to help her get her family but he tells her that she has to stay by his side at the whole time and follow his instructions because he just wants to take care of her yeah so at this point we have trent Avery, Layton, Mary Beth, Justin, Reverend Zombie, Vernon, and Uncle Bob still remaining, as well as a couple other random stragglers. And one of them tells Layton that he doesn't know who the fuck Victor Crowley is. He's nothing. Local boogeyman story about a retarded maniac who haunts Honey Island. Layton's response to the man is funny enough. And then the other guy asks Layton if he's anything like Jason Voorhees, because if he is, that shit ain't scary because he's from Glen Echo and they have Leslie Vernon there. <laughs> and I fucking love that part. I love Leslie Vernon. I wanted to put it in my top 10 list. And 
even though it is honestly one of my favorite movies, I cannot get most people to like that movie. So <laughs> for some reason, I left it off the list. I've, I've gotten you and my friend Lance to watch it and like the movie. Everybody else is like, what the fuck are you making me watch? So I feel like I'm crazy for loving that movie, but I really do love that movie. And I'm glad that Adam put that joke in there. That just means we're all real fans of the genre and the other people aren't. It's, <laughs> it, it's fan service, man. I still need Leslie Vernon too, okay? <laughs> but uh, this Motley crew heads out to Honey Swamp Island via a couple of boats, and they are surprised to see how many gators are there without hunters being allowed to come to the island and hunt them and how much money they could make. And if you think all these hunters that Reverend Zombie called in are gator hunters and everybody's seeing dollar signs in their eyes at this point. There is some side discussion on the boat and we get Vernon's hit song. On the gravy with the biscuits and the chicken wants a biscuit for the biscuit is me. I really do not like him in this movie. <laughs> I just want to say that. <laughs> do you know the story behind that song? I mean, I know he winged it. Yeah, it just, it just happened and it was like, fuck it, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> I don't know how everybody else kept a straight face while I did it <laughs> since it wasn't expected. Yeah. But really the only relevant conversation on the boat is between Reverend zombie and Mary Beth. And she explains how she was able to hurt him and took him down a couple of times and it would stop him for a bit. And Reverend zombie says that he thinks that if he takes the head off of him, it'll stop him for good. Apparently he's a fan of the Highlander. <laughs> Somewhere in your brain and tries to hit on Mary Beth and uncle Bob shuts that shit down real fast. And he starts giving shit, Vernon does, to uh, Reverend Zombie. He does a pretty good Tony Todd impersonation as he mocks Reverend Zombie. I liked it. Yeah. Magic. <laughs> I don't remember what all he says, but it's pretty funny. They see the um, like nameplate from the boat from the first film floating in the water. And they decide this is a good spot to park. And they head into the swamp as the sun begins to set. Great timing. Yeah, there's a lot of random chit chatter as Mary Beth tries to lead them to the house, but for some reason she can't fucking remember how to get there and says it was real confusing trying to get there at night on the previous night, even though she seemed to say that's actually his house. That's not in the first movie. I thought that part was kind of weird. Yeah, right by a fucking dock. <laughs> but for some reason, they decide to split up against Mary Beth's wishes, and this is where shit starts to hit the fan. Laura. Typecasting. I'm going to go ahead and call this the third act of the film right now, because at this point, the shit hits the fan and it starts to go real fast. Yep. The group splits off into multiple groups. We have John and Vernon turn into a buddy cop movie. <laughs> Cletus and Chad go gator hunting. Leighton and Avery head off to hook up. And then finally, we have Mary Beth, Reverend Zombie, Trent, Justin and uncle Bob heading off as one large group. We cut to Cletus and Chad gator hunting and they start to hear the moans of Victor Crowley waking up and they think it's Vernon messing with them until Victor charges out of the bushes and tackles Chad as Cletus runs off like a coward and viciously beats Chad's head in with the blunt end of a hatchet. And I just mean turns it into pulp. We now have our first kill of the movie and it uses a hatchet. And I'm actually going to track the kills in this movie because Adam decided that he wanted to not only double, but triple the kills from the first film. Oh, so okay. I count them as we go. <laughs> the big group takes a break 
into the woods. And for some reason, Mary Beth just walks off by herself. I don't know why nobody stops her. It just happens. I feel like there's a deleted scene there. And Justin and Reverend Zombie stand off at the side. And Justin says that he's not dumb. And he knows that there's more to what's going on than what Reverend Zombie's telling him. And Reverend Zombie explains to Justin that Samson, his brother, and Trent were the three kids that burned Victor Crowley's house. And he thinks that if the three of them die by Victor Crowley's hands, his spirit can be laid to rest. We got a plan. (laughs) (laughs) He says that Samson's down and he now has Trent and Mary Beth's uncle Bob for Victor Crowley to kill and hopefully end the curse. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm going to pull a Josh and meanwhile, a lot in this fucking movie. (laughs) We see Cletus running for his life to his boat because he brought his own boat in case he had the chance to hook up is what he says. And he, he gets his boat started as Victor Crowley dives on him, knocking him into the water and grabs him and slams his head into the uh, rudder of the boat, chopping his head off, right? Two down now. (laughs) We then cut to Leighton and Avery hanging out before they decide to start getting freaky with each other. And we get another quick cut to Mary Beth leading her crew into the shed at Victor Crowley's house. And dun, 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 her father and brother's bodies are missing. She thinks that maybe Victor took them into the house. So she charges off into the house on her own. The rest of the crew decides to go in behind them, right? We now cut back to Layton banging away at Avery from behind <laughs> and only comment on their position because it's about to be real relevant to the scene. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> she keeps asking him some weird shit. Like if, if he misses this. If he likes it more than ice cream, does he like it more than chocolate ice cream? And even ask him if he likes it more than Jesus. That's just, that's not appropriate. Oh, Southern girls are great. (laughs) Jesus. He mostly goes along with it until she wants him to say that he loves her. And he does his best Ash from the Army of Darkness impersonation (laughs) as he coughs out, I love you. He then starts going to town on her. And Victor Crowley appears behind him, cutting off his head, and she doesn't realize this. However, his body keeps having a death twitch going at it, and she really likes it at this point, until he stops moving, and she hopes that he didn't fall asleep on her again, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is all really happening in this movie. I'm not making this up. She then turns around and sees his decapitated body in Victor Crowley and quickly tries to crawl away until Victor gets her in the crotch with the hatchet yanks it out and swings it into her sternum so hard that it gets stuck and he has a hard time pulling it out and he has to yank really hard and then we get some more signature adam green bucket of blood splash on a tree four down (laughs) we cut back over to the cabin and we can see uncle bob telling mary beth that they need to leave and come back during the day with the police because their bodies are not there and i just want to point out that no matter if you believed in the superstition or not Why wouldn't you just come during the day anyways? If you do believe in the legend, there's no fucking Victor. I guess Reverend Zombie was running the whole thing and he had a plan here, but I don't know. Nobody else caught on. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot in this movie that nobody caught on, (laughs) (laughs) but they start to hear the Victor Crowley daddy growl, right? And barricade the house the best they can. We then cut back to our favorite buddy cop sitcom as they are startled by the growl and start to hear something in the bushes around them. So they prep their guns and fire some shots off into the bushes. And while this is going on, you can hear some sort of motor cranking up and revving the whole time in the background. 
And eventually, Victor Crowley comes walking out with the biggest fucking chainsaw you've ever seen in your life. It's fucking epic. And yeah, and he rams it into both of their crotches at the same time because it's so long, lifting them both off the ground and cutting them in half, including their testicles dropping separately. <laughs> yeah. And I want to point out that this is a real 120-pound chainsaw that Kane Hodder had to wield and come out. Obviously, the guys run wire work getting lifted, but it's a big fucking chainsaw he had to carry out. Yeah, that shit's great. While all this was happening, though, we had quick cuts to the cabin where Justin finds out that Sean and the others were dead and that Reverend Zombie lied to him. Uncle Bob decides to send a panicked Justin and Mary Beth to go hide in a back room while the rest of them hold the fort. And Justin spills the beans on Reverend Zombie's plans to Mary Beth. And when she finds out that he's just trying to get Uncle Bob killed, she runs off to him <laughs> to tell him. Guys, I got to point out what what you can't see that I can see as Jesse's going through this is there are quotes with Uncle Bob every time. <laughs> but now that Justin's alone, he hears something in the room because it's basically open to the fucking swamp and not actually a room. And he puts a chair under the doorknob because that'll help from the elements for some reason. Totally. And decides to go hide in the closet. And he's scared by some giant fucking spiders that terrify me until he realizes that Victor Crowley is also in the closet with him and he tries to make a run for it until Victor lobs a hatchet into his back, knocking him against the wall. And then he randomly pulls the belt sander out of the closet from the first film and buffs the back of Justin's skull off, exposing his brain and then killing him. Five down. <laughs> this happens as Mary Beth is telling Uncle Bob that this is a trap and they hear Justin dying in the other room and uncle Bob tries to be the hero and tries to get the door open to save Justin as Victor charges through the door, knocking the fuck out of him and slamming him into a wall, injuring him. And Mary Beth tries to stab him and she gets chunked across the room. And then we get to see a Leatherface versus Jason throwdown as Trent tries to wrestle Victor Crowley and He's the first person to actually try to fight Victor between the two movies, right? Yeah. Mary Beth tries to help injured Uncle Bob up as Reverend Zombie drags her away, telling her that he's saving her. And Uncle Bob tries to limp out behind them as Reverend Zombie kicks the door shut and shoots the latch so that he's stuck inside because that makes sense, the way that <laughs> that locked the door. And there's a big <laughs> hole in the door where you can kind of see in the room. That's going to be relevant here in a second. Yep. And we see Trent and Victor continue to throw down and it's actually a back and forth fight. Like Trent will get the upper hand and then Victor will get the upper hand. I like how they did it. Yeah. Until Victor gets the upper hand one final time and makes Trent bite the table and curb stops his head in half, making the top half of his head slide on the table six down. And this is Kane's favorite kill in the movie. Might as well. Probably. And Adam Green said that after finding out what a curb stomping was from American History X, which is when I found out what a curb stomping was, Same. he wanted to put one in a movie, but show it. <laughs> and it's really neat how they put, you know, the actor into like an indented table and then they had a perfectly sculpted top of his head. And from watching the behind the scenes, they had to slide that shit a bunch of times to get the, the shot the way they wanted it. Yeah. But Victor Crowley then goes after uncle Bob. Cause he's the only one left in the house with him. And uncle Bob charges in with a battle cry. Come on, you hatchet faithful. 
Fuck. Reverend Zombie and Mary Beth watch from the outside as you can hear Uncle Bob getting slung around, the shit beating out of him, and blood flying everywhere. But you can't actually see it. You just got this hole in the door and you see blood fly by every now and then. Yeah. And Reverend Zombie keeps holding on to her tight and holding her mouth as we hear the battle end and assume Bob dead. Seven down. He then tells her that it's all over because Victor Crowley has had his revenge on the three responsible for his death, and he fondly lets Mary Beth go, and she calls him a murderer and gives him a little bit of bad news. She says that Uncle Bob is not her real uncle. He was her daddy's best friend, and her real uncle died of leukemia when she was 12, and Victor Crowley did not get to murder the three responsible. Victor Crowley then comes out of the house, and we get the second... You got to be fucking kidding me out of the franchise from Reverend Zombie as Victor <laughs> Crowley charges them and we get a brief Candyman versus Jason fight until Victor Crowley whacks Reverend Zombie a couple of times in the side with a hatchet, cutting him in half. And the top half of Reverend Zombie tries to crawl away <laughs> as Victor Crowley grabs him from the inside and yanks his body out of his skin and throws the corpse into a tree. Eight down. <laughs> Fucked up scene. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Mary Beth then charges at him with the hatchet and gets a good hit on him, taking him down, and viciously beats the fuck out of his head into a pulp with the hatchet. Go to hell! It's full ham. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. She then walks away out of frame to the left, and we can see Victor Crowley's hands start moving, as he reaches for the hatchet and she walks back in a frame with the shotgun, puts it in his face and shoots off what's left of his head. Fuck you! Credits just ends abruptly like the first one right there. Yep. That's it. And that is hatchet too. <laughs> okay. So wait, Green said he wanted to double the kill count in this one. He said double and then fuck it. I tripled it in the making. But how many people died? In the first one, you got the, the two in the boat, brother and Paul. Then we got the conservative couple. Then we've got Shapiro, Jenna, Misty, uh, Marcus. And Ben. And presumably Ben. So there's nine <laughs> in the first one. Yes, but the montage of all the people dying over the decades was where he counted them and I forgot to. See, and that's what I was going to ask is, is he counting the montage? Yeah, yeah, he was. And I probably should have said it there and I fucked up and I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Including that montage, he at least doubled the account. Even then, I don't think that many people died in the montage. Just right. coupled the boat. You got the two sitting there gator hunting. I don't know. But either way, he made a big point of it. So I decided to count the uh, bodies <laughs> because I don't know what it was in real time, but that felt like a real short part of the podcast going through <laughs> all those eight people dying. And the amount of movie left when I said one down to eight down was not very much film. It's insane how much like backstory and, 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 chitter chatter there is in the movie and then how much like just straight to the kill right there in the last like 20 minutes of the film yep it, it's back to the well like the first one where it's set up set up set up set up and then go and once it goes it just goes and i'm fine with that i mean for all of its flaws just just the ending just just to see daniel harris walk out of frame and then come back with a shotgun i know <laughs> it's so what well, you it. always want to happen in a movie that yes. it never does 
<laughs> oh, you finally get it. Okay. You know, going back to the first one, there's a lot of people, myself included on first watch that just watch it and they're like, oh my God, this is just a ripoff of like 17 different horror movies and there's nothing original and nothing new and this is stupid. And I honestly think that's part of the point. <laughs> I'm starting to think it is. And I fit in that category because I had heard you and your wife talk about this movie so much to me and occasionally saw a reference on Dreadit. And I just remember being at your house one day and we had had way too many beers that day. And you're like, you're finally going to watch Hatchet. And maybe that's <laughs> not how I should have started the franchise off because I watched the movie. and I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? You told me about this masterpiece. And this is just like, dude doesn't know if he wants it to be a true slasher movie or a horror comedy and just chunks buckets of blood at shit. And I think it was just basically a, a series of kill scenes and dick and fort jokes. Pretty much. And honestly, yes, yes, correct on both, both statements. And both these movies fit that primarily the first one, I would say, I don't know. It's really weird. Like the first one has great horror comedy stuff in there, even though he doesn't count it as a horror comedy and yeah. could have gone full blown horror comedy, but he put actual slasher shit in there. And then this one, I don't know. I, I like the first movie more, in one way, but in another way, I want to say the second movie feels like he kind of found the middle ground a little better. Yes, I, I agree. Even though the story's weak sauce, it's more about the story and less about the comedy. Except for, do you love this more than ice cream? That is fucking iconic yeah. right there. Yeah, he put a couple of gags in there, but for the most part, this was more serious of a horror film. Yeah. And honestly, I was going to say... I'd like to see him go one way and then the other, like a straight slash and a horror comedy, but I bet he'd suck it to go either one of them straight. Like, I think Adam's got to do his own thing and this is it. I can't wait to go through all of his movies later because frozen, I think you'll really like Okay, it is nothing, absolutely nothing like this. Digging up the marrow is terrible, but it has a couple of funny moments in it. Spiral, though, that he did with, uh, which was written by someone else, let's get that clear, that he did with uh, uh, Joel David Moore, you'll probably love. Okay. But he didn't write that I noticed one. in the behind the scenes, they had Spiral shirts and hats on. I know what the fuck it was. So Yeah. And that's the other thing. If you watch, like if you watch the shorts and if you watch some of the other shit that he's done, the guy just really does love horror. And instead of trying to invent something new, he just said, fuck it. Everybody knows what it is. I'm going to going to do everything that everybody expects and see how far I can push what everybody thinks they're going to see. And okay. And, th and that's what I think he did. And once once I actually watched behind the scenes and shit like that, I was like, I, I, I get Hatchet better now. It's still got tons of flaws, but I get it. Yeah. And, and, and I think, too, like you said, two tried to get it on the rails. And what's funny is I haven't rewatched three and four yet, and they're the ones that I've seen the least. So I can't comment on how much farther it goes, <laughs> but I remember it not going well. <laughs> they're not bad, and I'll save that for the, for the next episode, but – since I'd only seen the first Hatchet film and I'd only seen it once, when you said you want to do this franchise, I went ahead and marathoned all four of them. So I had a <laughs> whole idea of the franchise before going in because this is the only episode that I can think of of the podcast where I went in blind on just about anything. Right? This is like me with the Halloween franchise. <laughs> <laughs> like there's some stuff I'd only seen once and, and stuff like that. But this is the first time where it's like, I saw one movie once intoxicated, don't remember it well and didn't like it. And I hadn't seen the other three and let's do it. So I will say some of his shorts, you can tell he's like 
really good as a director. And then when you watch like his uh, scary sleepover YouTube videos and when you listen to the movie crypt, this guy's fucking got it on point, which just really bangs in the head to me that Hatchet is meant to be this way. Yeah. If you watch any interview with the guy or the making of either one of these films on YouTube, this guy loves horror. He knows his shit. He knows how to direct. And he just had a very fucking specific idea and went in and did it. But it's not necessarily what everyone was looking for. And that's what was really interesting with the second film, because I think he had a different studio make the second movie, right? No, correctly. No, they're both Aries scope, if I remember right. In the end, I'm, I'm talking about the original like financiers of the film. Oh, yeah. They they had private investors. Yeah. He was saying that like normally with a sequel, they tell you, OK, your first movie was the niche film and. It took off, but now with the second one, we want to get it to more people, get more asses in the seat. You got to make it a more open and for everyone film. And he was like, no, no, no. I actually want to make this movie only for people who like the first one. And they're like, you know what? It worked out for the first movie. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. And that's what he did. He made a sequel only for people who liked Hatchet One. (laughs) And that was his goal. And you can't shit on a guy for having a dream and a goal and hitting it. And there's some real skill and talent there with his writing and directing. But in the end, it's I would not say these are great slasher flicks. No, they're they're not. And at this point, they're not iconic. I don't think we've birthed a new horror icon. But I could have been wrong several times before. 30 years <laughs> from now, it may be completely different. But what I can tell you is I would rather sit down and watch these than sit down and watch the Hellraiser franchise. And that's got to yeah. count for something. But, of course, the Hellraiser franchise, that's a whole thats a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> I mean, watching these four movies and then watching the first two three times a piece recently, as well as a bunch of behind the scenes, I'm now going to be one of those jackasses that have people come over to my house and say, hey, you got to watch the Hatchet movies. And I'm going to start playing them, and everybody's going to look at me like I'm crazy, like (laughs) I did to you and Ginger. So it it had an effect on me. Yeah, yeah, they're still worth the watch, because especially the first one with the amount of comedy stuff, there's Gorehound stuff, um, you know, it's just over-the-top Yo, crazy killer slasher flick. And uh, the second one's more of the same with a little bit more story in there. They're great rides as far as that goes, but they're nothing, they're nothing new. They're nothing special, but they're still fun. And it's still cool to see where somebody just had an idea and eventually made it happen. It's kind of like the Kevin Smith story in a way. Yeah. And, and I give dude credit for that. Yeah, I mean, definitely, especially right now that all four films are on Amazon Prime and almost everybody has Amazon Prime during this pandemic. If you didn't already go back and watch it. And the first one is really funny as a horror comedy and really does have a lot of slasher staples in there. And then you might as well watch the first three, at least, because you can tell it was written as one trilogy. He actually wrote it as a trilogy and had it purposefully planned to end where the the first two ended. The fourth one is basically your leprechaun in space or or Jason X, right? Like, it's just the fucking, oh, is this really what's happening right now? Yeah. (laughs) Like, like to get you back there. But you could also tell, like, his his craft was more polished by the time he got to the fourth one, even though, well, we'll just save that for the next one. All right. So at that point, guys, I'm going to say that's it for Hatchet Franchise Part 1. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode when we continue the Hatchet Franchise. Let's do this, you little bitch. As usual, guys, thank you for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. 
We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at SBIS Podcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening. You can't kill him. He'll just be reborn.